This is the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. Each episode, we ask a single question. To find the answers, we speak with experts and listeners like you. This podcast contains explicit content. Please proceed with caution. I'm Noah Michelson. And I'm Karina Kolodny. This week's question is, what's it like to be a sex tourist? Our question was inspired by hearing lots of traveling while tindering or grindering tales. But first, we want to make it very clear that we're not talking about the type of sex tourism that a lot of people imagine. Something like an older man going to a poor country and spending the week with trafficked underage girls. This is about the type of sex tourism where consensual, out-of-the-area code sex is just as much the destination as the destination itself. Exactly, Karina. And while many people told us that they use apps now when they're on the road to try and find hookups, it made me wonder, what did people do before apps? It's such a sad question because I feel like almost everyone can apply that to almost every sector of their lives. Like, how, how did I drive without the GPS? Like, maps? What? But in order to find out what people did in the dark ages before apps and smartphones and all of this fancy technology, we're going to be speaking with travelers who frequent leather festivals, clothing optional bed and breakfasts, the so-called Gigolo Coast, and, of course, Amsterdam's red light district. Stay tuned. So I've never been a quote-unquote sex tourist. I've never booked a trip just to go have sex. But I did live in San Francisco in the early 2000s, and I attended the Folsom Street Fair, which is this incredible street fair, And but it's all about the leather and kink community. And I saw things there that I have never seen before. I literally saw a woman who was tied up, um, and she was getting fisted, just like on the street. Like, you know, in front of Starbucks. It wasn't in front of Starbucks, but it could have been in front of Starbucks. (laughs) And I felt like I was like Pinocchio on, you know, whatever that misfit toy island is, you know, where everyone's just having a grand old time. And it was amazing. Kind of like the sexual version of Purge Night where everyone is actually like themselves. Yes. Um, So both of us find Folsom really fascinating. And we wanted to talk with someone who's familiar with the festival. We reached out to Matt from Sydney, Australia. He's a DJ and event producer who's regularly traveled all the way from Australia to Folsom since 2009. Being a smaller community here in Australia, when it comes to uh, leather or um, sexually active uh, cultures is something that isn't as big uh, mostly due to population. <laughs> what would you say you've learned about yourself since you've gone to Folsom? I think over time, I've learned that there are a lot of different fetishes that I, for me, I've got a lot of different tastes in men and different, uh, I guess, uh, fetishes. So, you know, if you like to keep it simple, there's a lot of different simple uh, things like just leather events. But, you know, there's also the pups, there's, um, I mean, recently, I'm not sure the exact uh, name of it, but there is, uh, I guess you would call it a baby fetish, uh, where men prefer to be dressed as uh, infants. And yeah, it's a lot of different things. And I mean, that's the kind of thing that I never would have guessed existed. But, you know, it's interesting to see what other people 
are attracted to or are into. And I mean, there's probably going to be a lot of different kinks and fetishes that will develop over the years that may not even exist right now or not be very well known. There are events beyond leather parties? Yeah, there's uh, the uh, people who would flag yellow with uh, piss parties, uh, things who... Uh, people who are interested in uh, fisting as well. I mean, there's also neoprene, which is kind it's not too new, but a lot of people prefer that to say leather. Um, bondage, um, S&M, you know, it's a lot of this stuff that some people still don't even know in this day. I mean, even with movies and books like Fifty Shades. So, yeah, there's a lot of different things. I mean, even I'm still discovering. I mean, there's a very broad range when it comes to the hanky code that I'm still figuring out which color goes where. All right, we're just going to have to time out really quickly. Noah, are you familiar with the flag system? Do you have any colored hankies? Have you been sending me covert messages that I've been missing? My mind is blown. What is happening? I do know about the hanky system, but it's much more something from the 70s and 80s. I don't think most gay men use it anymore, but I'll let Matt explain a little bit more about it. So years ago, and this is before you'd have things like Grindr or uh, apps where you can meet guys, uh, men would have a hanky and different colors and different pockets would distinguish what fetish you're into or if you would be more the uh, top or bottom, you know, give or receiver, that kind of thing. So, I mean, you know, as I was saying before with uh, yellow, that would be for people who are into uh, urine or piss play. Uh, Red would be for fisting. So, you know, left would be top, right would be bottom. And there's a lot of different colors. Even just a slight shade change in color would mean a completely different fetish. When I was at Folsom 15 years ago, we didn't have apps. So when you're at the festival now, Matt, do you use Grindr? I myself am not a fan of Grindr. Um, I'm much more a user of scruff, uh, mostly because my taste in men would be, you know, hairier, uh, bigger, broader guys. So I, when it comes to, say, grinder, I wouldn't use it, but scruff, yeah, I, I've turned it on during Folsom. And yeah, there's a lot of activity for people who are looking for their type of men and their type of fetish. So, you know, whether it be anything on the the hanky code that would be their search or even, you know, looking to create a group, that kind of thing. It's it's definitely got that ability more. But, you know, also Scruff's got a bit more variation on it if people want to meet for, like, dates rather than just hookups. So how do you think apps have changed Folsom? I think it's become a great way to advertise what's out there. And you can get that reach a bit more than, say, if you were just opening a Gloss magazine or... Uh, just going on to Folsom Street Events website, it gives people that ability to put out there what they want or what they're looking for, even search for it better. Um, It's created more of a range rather than just for hooking up. So I guess it depends if people are only looking on apps, that's all you're going to find. But if you want to go searching for it, you could definitely find it uh, by doing a bit of research online or reading a paper. So even though I don't consider myself a sex tourist because I haven't traveled anywhere specifically for sex, I would say that I do like to have sex while I'm on vacation. And usually I do that by using an app. 
it's kind of exciting to go somewhere. Like I was in Sweden this summer and like you fire up Grindr and all of a sudden there are all these men you've never seen before in your life. And you can kind of have your pick of the litter. Well, and before that, you'd have the language barrier and you had the like, are you or aren't you barrier? So it sort of gives you this whole pool of people when you know what you're looking for. Exactly. And you also don't have to go to a particular location. You don't have to go to a gay bar and find someone. Basically, people come to you, which I think is good and bad. I mean, there's something to be said for the community that's built by having to go to a gay bar and meeting people in person and and all of that. But apps have made it so much easier to find sex when you're traveling. There is something magical to the serendipity that just comes from meeting somebody authentically. Not that online dating can't be authentic. I think we're reaching that tipping point, and I wouldn't want to imply that. But when we talked about this earlier in an episode we did about online dating, we talked about how people don't necessarily know what they're looking for, Mm -hmm. especially, I mean, maybe for sex, that's different. But if you're looking for a longtime partner or something like that, it's harder because you you can add in all these filters, like six foot five. But like that would not be the guy at the bar that you'd go up and start talking to because the six foot five guy is a jerk or not funny or not interesting or not engaging. So I think maybe we do miss out on some things, even though it's opened up a lot of opportunities, especially for marginalized communities. I would agree. But while we're on the subject of apps and sex tourism, I want to share a recent conversation I had with Jay. Jay's 40. He lives in Phoenix. And he's somewhat of a public figure. So he likes to get out of town to hook up. Well, I can tell you, you know, being the fact that I've, I have been in the public eye for as long as I have, the idea of a, uh, a random hookup or just even a one-night stand sometimes can be a little bit awkward. Uh, it's not uh, very common that you can be as anonymous as you want to be, and sometimes you're not really looking to advertise that you're trying to fulfill that particular need in your life at that moment. So uh, being here in the the Phoenix area, it's not uncommon for people to uh, travel elsewhere. Uh, Palm Springs is one place in particular. It's about a four and a half hour drive, so it's not very long. And uh, it's really an adult playground when it comes to uh, gay men. Uh, You can go there. You can be around other professionals, if you will, that are in the same situation that you're in. There's kind of an understanding between everybody that it's a don't ask, don't tell. I don't really need to know more than I need to about you. And you're fulfilling that need, that desire to basically get satisfied. How do you find people once you get there? Are you using apps? Are you attending events? Well, I can tell you that when I first started going there, there really weren't a lot of the apps available uh, like they are today. There wasn't, you know, the, the hookup apps that are prevalent right now. So a lot of the times it was one of these things where you were at a uh, a clothing optional resort. You would kind of eye someone, do a, you know, a simple nod, if you will. And maybe there was a brief conversation and conversation led to, oh, you know, let's go check out the steam room for a while. And, you know, maybe your partner or if you were single, you know, you just went off to the steam room and, and things happened. It kind of had that feel of what you read about or heard about from the, the bathhouses back in the day. Um, I don't want to say that it's, you know, that kind of way in uh, particular, but, you know, you just kind of had that understanding that we're going to go off and we're going to do our thing. And a lot of the times afterwards, you know, very minimal conversation would be had. Uh, you would just keep acknowledging the person around the, the resort, but it wasn't necessarily like, oh, well, we're going to continue this hookup thing. Mm-hmm. 
Because you were traveling, and because you were somewhere you didn't have to worry about encountering someone you knew, do you think that allowed you to be more open or free when it came to sex? Um, it definitely allowed me to be more open. I felt like I would, uh, it was kind of like you were uh, taking a little bit of brave juice, if you will, and you, you, I wasn't afraid to approach someone that I found attractive or that I was sexually into, um, whereas if I was in my home city, I obviously would never do such a thing. You know, I didn't want that public uh, image out there. Um, so yeah, when you're in a place where nobody really knows you, it's kind of like everybody else is in the same boat as you are. You're definitely more comfortable. You're definitely more apt to go up to someone that you may not have in your local bar or, or nightclub and go from there. Yeah, definitely. Have you ever gone on a trip and met someone that you've continued to have a relationship with sexually or not? Um, no, I, I haven't. I know that there was, um, I do remember there was one time that um, I had hooked up with another couple and uh, we continued to hang out after the hookup throughout the resort, went to dinner, went to dinner with my partner. And it was, it seemed as if it were developing into a friendship and there was an exchange of, Hey, you know, here's uh, our names, our numbers, uh, look us up on Facebook, but it never happened. Um, Basically, once we left, the relationship kind of stopped there. I don't know if it was just one of these things that once you get in the car and you start really thinking about what just happened, it feels a little awkward, if you will. Mm-hmm. Are you still traveling for sex? And if so, do you have any trips coming up? Um, I recently celebrated my 40th birthday uh, back in the area. Um, while I'm single, so I, I've been single now for about a year and a half. And while I was there, I did... Uh, I did hook up with some people and they were in relationships and it was, you know, I didn't really delve into the details with what their uh, arrangements, if you will, were, but uh, I definitely did have a good time. So you touched on this a little bit in your conversation with Jay Noah, but I do think there's a lot to be said for people traveling to have sex because it makes them feel safer and because we're not completely in touch or comfortable with our own sexuality. Um, For one of our first episodes, for listeners that might remember, I went to Paddles, which was the first public sex dungeon and now the only public sex dungeon in New York City. And one of the things that the owner was telling me was that people fly in from Tampa, they fly in from Austin just for the weekend to experience it there. Now, I'm sure there are places where they could go and do that in Tampa or Austin if they looked hard enough. But I do think, even though it's fun and I think don't think it just comes down to sort of shame or feeling uncomfortable. There's a lot of the anonymity factor and like, okay, I can go and live this life over here and then I can sort of take a vacation from that life and that person and have sex over here in a way that I might not within my own area code. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I have friends too who won't even use Grindr in New York because they have professional jobs and they don't want to see other people. And I always say, well, if someone sees you on Grindr, they're on there too. But Grindr doesn't work that way. I mean, you don't have to show your face. You don't have to use an image. You can just, you know, lurk if you want to. So um, I do think there is something to be said for that. And I, I think it also helps people be freer. You know, you can go somewhere. You can go to Palm Springs like Jay did and just really get your rocks off have a great time and not worry about who you might be interacting with or who might be watching. Or who might be your next client that's going to walk into the office meeting. Exactly. So th- I, think it, I think it makes total sense. 
Coming up on the HuffPost Love and Sex podcast, we'll talk to a woman who lives in South America and considers herself a sex tourist. We'll also get a glimpse into Amsterdam's red light district and learn the ins and outs of legal prostitution. If you haven't taken the time to subscribe, rate, and review HuffPost's Love and Sex podcast on iTunes, now is your chance. Karina and I are on a mission to spread sex positivity, and we need your help. Each time you rate, review, or subscribe to our show on iTunes, it helps us climb the iTunes charts. And that helps other people discover our show. Which helps spread sex positivity. And that's not the only reason to visit iTunes. There are lots of shows to check out. And one that Noah and I highly recommend is called The Sporkful, hosted by Dan Pashman. Eating good food actually releases the same kind of happy hormones as having good sex. Probably comes as no surprise to our listeners that we love to binge on The Sporkful. We sure do. I think the best thing about The Sporkful is that it explores the big, exciting world of food. And we're not just talking about chefs or restaurants or recipes. In some ways, it kind of reminds me of our own Love & Sex podcast in that it takes an anthropological approach, but in this case, it's to food. I totally agree. In fact, they cover topics like what to eat on a first date or the etiquette and ethics of office fridges. Uh, I can think of a few people at the HuffPost office who could use that. Yeah, more than a few. Um, They also did an episode, one of my favorites, on how to eat a jelly donut to get even distribution of jelly in every bite, which is something I'm deeply passionate about and I feel like is underreported in the news media. I really like the episode called Beyond Pot Brownies. It was with Radiolab's Jad Abenrod, and they just seamlessly mixed a scientific approach to the topic, which happens to be one of my personal passions. But you just felt like you were hanging out with a bunch of your buddies in a basement somewhere. Hanging out with a bunch of your stoned buddies in a basement somewhere. Is there any other kind? (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff all around. So the Sporkful podcast, it's not for foodies, it's for eaters. And you can get it wherever you get your podcast or in the WNYC app. Okay, my name is Jody Hansen, and I was born in Canada, but I haven't lived there for 25 years because it's too cold. So I've sort of become a global wanderer, and I've lived in 10 different countries, traveled to 107, and have passports in three. Um, my background is a PhD in adult education. And I've turned to writing full-time. I'm trying to, I keep saying that I'm a recovering academic. Mm. Um, And at the present time, I'm living in Medellin, Colombia, and studying Spanish. You know, we found Jody just by searching the internet. And we really wanted to have a woman's voice in here. I think, as you talked about at the top of the show, Karina, there is this sort of stereotypical image of a sex tourist as being a straight man going to Thailand and getting a 10-year-old little girl to have sex with. And yeah, that does happen. But there are also a lot of people, I think, who are doing it the right way and taking control of their sexuality and going out and finding what, what they want. So Jody is one of those people. And Karina had the chance to talk with her last week. So Jody, you've actually written a couple of articles about sex tourism and sex pets as they're known. But before we get to those, can you explain in your own words what you think sex tourism and sex pets are? 
Sex tourism is when Western adults go off generally to the developing world and hook up with young, younger people, you know, be it in Cambodia or the Gigolo Coast, which is what the Gambia is known as. Um, my personal position is that as long as it's between two consenting adults, I really don't have a problem with sex tourism. Um, to give you an example, young women coming into Phnom Penh from the provinces have very few choices. They don't have an education. They can't get a regular job. So they can work as a servant, and they would make about $80 a month. They can work in a restaurant. Mm, it would be about the same, but food would be included. Or they can work in a factory starting at $100 a month, and it might go up to 150 Or they can become taxi girls, bar hosts, um, whatever, and get into the sex industry. And sex paths are Western men who hook up with women and develop a quote-unquote relationship. Now, this may or may not involve living together, um, getting married, having children. It's the whole thing of sex tourism and sex paths. There's a lot of overlap and much of it is a gray area. And I mean, some 20 year old, 25 year old guy from America who goes to Cambodia and falls in love with a Cambodian woman and gets married and they have children. Is he a sex pat? That's a really interesting question. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience as a female sex tourist in particular? Well, it goes back a long way, actually. I was a 28-year-old teacher living on a fly-in Indian reserve in northern Canada. And um, I went to Cuba for a week. It was Easter. So I sort of landed there. I'm lying on the beach. And this beach boy comes along and starts talking to me, and his English isn't bad. I'll call him Carlos, for lack of a better name. And um, so he said, well, my friend and I would like to go out tonight. And I said, okay, fine. So we went off for possibly the worst pizza I've ever had. And then we ended up at this nightclub. And of course, these guys don't have any money. And I knew that they didn't have any money. And it was much like the reserve. When it was time to, you know, pass the hat around to get money to buy beer from the bootlegger, people with jobs were expected to contribute more. So I already came from that kind of background, so it didn't bother me at all. And then Carlos wanted a jacket or something from the store that only foreigners could shop in. And I said, yeah, yeah, fine, okay. Bought the jacket for him and flew back to Canada. Never thought anything more about it. And um, it wasn't until sex tourism became big news that I realized that I, in fact, had been a sex tourist. You know, which I thought was hysterically funny, actually. So do you identify as a sex tourist or no. as you said? You know, I mean... Sex tourism hadn't even been discovered then or talked about as such. But there were a number of Canadian women there 
who had Cuban boyfriends. One, for example, had made her third trip to Cuba, and she had her father with her, and she was trying to get um, a permit so that her boyfriend, her Cuban boyfriend, could go to Canada. Is that sex tourism? I don't know. Technically, yes. So you're clearly painting a spectrum for us and saying there are a lot of shades of gray. And it seems like with a few caveats, maybe, you see sex tourism in a positive light. Why then do you think that there's such a focus on the negative aspects of sex tourism? Why do you think that's that's really all that we tend to hear about and associate with? I think people get really moralistic about it. And they don't really understand how it works. Um, I mean, I'm not talking about pedophiles. That's a totally different camp. You know, like we want nothing to do with them. For me, sex tourism and sex pats is between two consenting adults. And people in the West seem to think that sex in sex tourism, it's the young women and the young men who are working in the industry that are exploited. You know, horribly exploited and beaten and whatever else. Which isn't true at all. If you're on the ground and watching it, I mean... <clears throat> Um, some of the women in the bar that I used to hang out with were absolutely fantastic actresses. And they, you know, they would be with somebody for a week and they'd say things like, you didn't buy me a present today. I guess you don't love me anymore. Pout, pout. And all of a sudden she'd get an iPhone 6. You've illuminated a lot of really interesting points and anecdotally I think have shown us a pretty broad spread that there definitely is conclusively and extensive evidence that sex tourism leads to the exploitation and enslavement of vulnerable people, and that a lot of times they are started younger. And so maybe you're having sex or engaging with somebody when they're 25 and of the legal age, wherever you happen to be, but they were brought into it before they could consent and have really no bonds with breaking out of that. How do you feel about that? Well, that's quite true. I mean, the opportunities become limited because if somebody's brought into the sex industry when he or she is 15, um, their chances of getting other work is very limited um, because they don't have any skills, they don't have any education, they don't have, you know, sort of a lot of background in working. So, yes, there is a lot of exploitation, definitely. Um, but I don't think that I think it has to be a realistic, balanced focus. You know, Western people tend to only look at the negative. And I think that there is a positive side to it as well. Because a number of sex workers um, really, well, for lack of a better phrase, I'll say get their act together. And they, they will hook up with a foreigner and by the way, all, virtually all, I've never met one who said no, all the bar girls, taxi girls, sex workers, whatever you want to call them, want to marry a foreigner. And he might be old and ugly, but he's going to support her. He's going to support her family and probably half the village. 
So what do you think should be done about sex tourism to sort of weed out some of those seedier spaces? Should it be regulated? What can we do to make sure that sex tourism can exist when it's being used in a positive, consensual way, but ensure that it's not being used when it's being done in an exploitative way? Well, I think as soon as you start putting restrictions and prohibitions and anything uh, into place, then it just the sex industry has a natural way of evolving on its own. And if, if you leave it alone, people will sort it out. But if you start getting officials in there to register sex workers or do this or do that, um, it just becomes really detrimental to everybody. I don't, I don't know how you can set it up. I mean, anybody can get a visa and go to Cambodia you know, and stay for a year if they want. It doesn't matter. So I don't have any clear-cut answers as to how you eliminate the sleazy part of it. Um, The only suggestion I have is that you do extensive educational work with the sex workers. What advice do you have for other women who are interested in becoming a sex tourist or in just trying out sex tourism? I think the sort of national knowledge of it is that it's a man's game, but you seem to be saying that there's definitely opportunities regardless of gender or gender identity. Oh, absolutely. I mean, female sex tourism is increasing exponentially. Um, A friend of mine lives in the Gambia, which is called the Gigolo Coast. And there's plane loads of women that fly in from Northern Europe to, you know, team up with a beach boy. And they're older, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if they just want to go to the Gambia for a week and bonk themselves silly, who cares? You know, as long as they pay for it and it's a, you know, fair and equitable sort of arrangement. Um, I mean, shades of Shirley Valentine. I have an enormous amount of respect for the people that we've spoken with and their ability to sort of be autonomous and go out there and and do what they want and do what feels good for them because that's what sex positivity is all about. But the other end of sex positivity is that it has to be consensual and it has to be beneficial for both parties. And I think that's a real gray area in sex tourism for some of the reasons we've already discussed. I don't think you can truly know whether or not somebody is choosing to be a sex worker because that's a decision that they've made and they're making that from an empowered place or if they're doing it from being trafficked at a young age or having no other options. So I feel like no matter how much you try to regulate it, if you're paying for it or if there is sort of this explicit exchange, there is danger of contributing to a worldwide problem. I totally agree with you, but at the same time, I'm pulled in the other direction because I'm very much pro-sex work. And I do think that people can do sex work because they want to do it, and they can do it in ways that are safe and respectful for themselves. And not everyone is coerced into it. And so um, it's hard for me to know where you draw the line. Because at the same time, like you said, so many people are trafficked into it, um, get into it when they are young, have no way to get out of it. And when you're just going somewhere as a sex tourist, it's not easy to always define who fits into what category. So it's kind of problematic. Yeah, there's not a straightforward answer. While that's true, one place that has been lauded for its approach to sex tourism and prostitution is Amsterdam's Red Light District. 
So we spoke with Alard Tassat Van Pateau. He's the CEO and founder of Amsterdam Red Light District Tour. And he gave us a glimpse inside the district. Tell me about the Red Light District, especially for some of our listeners who maybe have never heard of it and definitely have never been there. What, what is the Red Light District like? Um, well, the Red Light District is a very interesting uh, neighborhood. It's, um, it's the oldest part of Amsterdam. Um, so this is where Amsterdam, the foundation of Amsterdam lies uh, in the beginning of time, let's say 13, 1400s. Uh, there was nothing much more, uh, around in, in the Red Light District or in Amsterdam. And, uh, but already back then you had prostitutes in that area. Uh, yeah, now a couple centuries later, uh, a lot of things changed and, um, well, you know, the window, window brothels, most of them, they were introduced after the second world war in the sixties. And, uh, nowadays, um, yeah, you see them all over in Amsterdam. Uh, the red light district itself is, uh, is nowadays a safe neighborhood, um, safe for, for locals and for tourists. But it used to be different, uh, especially in the, the 60s and the 70s. Uh, back then, it was a uh, yeah, rough area and a no-go area. And some people know it even as, an, uh, as, a, as the ghetto of the Netherlands. Um, it was pretty much uh, yeah, caused by uh, the heroin trade, by, uh, by prostitution, um, uh, pimps and whatnot. Uh, and nowadays, you see that the red light district has changed into an uh, urban uh, hotspot. Uh, completely safe. The heroin trade is now over. Um, it's filled with yeah, good restaurants, nice bars, um, churches, uh, Chinatown, but also still the brothels and also still uh, the cannabis stores. Uh, but luckily nowadays it's uh, much more safer. Mm -hmm. What about for people who are there though, you know, for, for the sex purposes, for people who are sexual tourists, what kind of services can they get from, from the brothels or from the red light district? The customers they can expect, uh, yeah, pretty much anything. So they can uh, every prostitute, um, yeah, has you know every prostitute can decide herself uh, who she allows and who she doesn't. Uh, some prostitutes they do like you know threesomes. Some of them they don't do that. Some do anal. Some don't. So um, yeah, there, there's a lot of variety, and um, also in age, and also in yeah fetish. Um, in general, the price is 50 euros. Uh, that's for 15 to 20 minutes, um, and that's for yeah. I think in general, it's in the, for the full package, uh, so to say. Alar gave us some other info about sex work in Amsterdam. He told us that most sex workers in the Netherlands don't own a brothel. They rent a room in one. Prices to rent a room for one shift, which usually lasts between 5 hours and 11 hours, can range from 80 euros during the day all the way up to 150 euros at night. It's illegal for sex workers in Amsterdam to have shifts that last more than 11 hours, and the minimum age in Holland for being a sex worker is 21. By law, sex workers in the Netherlands can refuse service to any customer. The goal is to make sure that the sex workers hold the power, not the patron. Most brothels in Holland are outfitted with security systems, which are monitored by the owners of the brothels or their employees. A brothel owner is not a pimp. He or she is more an entrepreneurial groundskeeper. They're renting out spaces in the brothel to sex workers. And they have to have a permit, and they have to follow a lot of rules. For example, the brothel operator needs to be close to its brothels and should be able to help in case of emergency within just a few minutes' time. Also, the sex workers in the windows have to show their ID to the brothel operator to make sure they're of age. While obviously nothing can make sex workers completely safe, 
there are a lot of safety measures in place to try and ensure that they're as safe as possible. There are police officers who monitor the red light district, both in uniform and undercover. There are bouncers who work for the district's bars and strip clubs on hand. And there's a community of neighbors, sex workers, tourists, and people who work in the vicinity who have formed a kind of neighborhood watch over the area. It isn't mandatory for sex workers to undergo STI or health checks, but they are the only citizens who can receive STI tests for free. Most sex workers get tested on a regular basis, and most of them do safe sex only. So, Karina, tell me, are you prepared to become a sex tourist? No. Why not? I have a boyfriend. You guys could be sex tourists together. Totally. I mean, I think it would be fun to go hang out in cool places and have sex around the world. But no, um, I don't know. I think it's such a hard line for me because I don't want to be disrespectful or take away the autonomy from women that are doing this, you know, from a place of empowerment or, or men who are doing it from a place of empowerment. But I just think at this point, that tightrope is just too thin between exploiting and non-exploiting. But what about sex tourism like going to the Folsom Street Fair or going to a clothing-optional resort in Palm Springs? Like that does, there, No one's being exploited in those kind of situations. You're just booking a trip where you're going to go have sex with other people and have a good time. I mean, if the question is if I were a single young lady abroad and I met some like hot guy at a cafe, would I, you know, then who knows? Why not? But but you wouldn't there pl- wouldn't be an exchange. You wouldn't but you wouldn't plan a trip specifically. Like, you know, there are nudist colonies in Florida that I heard are beautiful. You and your boyfriend would never say, you know what, we want to go on a trip. Let's check out one of these clothing optional resorts and go for the weekend. And again, there's no exchange except for obviously you're paying for your room and maybe you're gonna have sex with someone, but you're not paying for that. It's just you're going to a sexually charged or sexually themed resort. Look, I went to Sarah Lawrence College, so I'm not going to knock it. But uh, <laughs> it's just it's not something that is appealing to me at this point okay. in my life. But f- there is absolutely no judgment there because who knows? Like I can totally see myself as like a 75-year-old widow at like Folsom Street Fair being like, back in my day, you know, I don't know. I hope that happens. I mean, Totally. Why not? I don't know if I would do it either. I like to have sex wherever I am, you know? I could have sex in the studio at some point. Probably will happen, maybe. Our our producer's shaking her head (laughs) now. So am I. (laughs) But I don't know if I would ever plan a trip specifically centered around sex. I, You know, sex sort of falls into my lap or, or I go looking for it when I need it. But I don't know if I would ever plunk down the money and take the days off of work just to go have sex. I will say I have friends who, you know, maybe dated somebody in the city where they lived and that person moved to another city and they yes. go for like a lover's weekend or something like that. And and that makes sense to me. I can see where the sort of fun and appeal would be to that. For sure. And I think, again, zooming out as we like to do at these last moments of our podcasts and thinking about the idea of sex positivity and whatever, you know, if you're someone like Jay and you are well-known in your city, and you don't feel comfortable getting your freak on for whatever reason, then this kind of an experience seems to really make sense. So if you can do sex tourism, and it can be valuable to you, or it can be empowering to you, and you're not, you know, exploiting other people, I think people should do it. Go on one of those, you know, cruises or You know, there's so many options. Sex with a view, man. Get into it. Sex with a view. I'm into it. 
I'm ready. That's it for this episode of HuffPost Love and Sex. Thanks to our producer, Caitlin Bukuki, our editor, Nick Offenberg, our audio engineer, Brad Shannon, and to Lauren Bell, our designer and production assistant. Also, a special thanks to our sponsor, MeUndies. Please let us know what you think of the show. We really do value all of your opinions, especially if you have an idea for an episode or want to share your story. You can find us on Twitter with the handle at HuffPostPodcast. And you can always email us. We're available at loveandsexpodcast at huffingtonpost.com. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. It helps other people discover our show and, by extension, sex positivity. And keep clicking those gold stars. If we get more for this episode, HuffPost is going to buy us each a trip around the world so we can boink ourselves silly on every continent. (laughs) And don't forget to check out The Sporkful, hosted by Dan Pashman. It will be a delicious addition to your favorite podcasts. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye.